Open your Bible with me to Proverbs chapter 4. And we have been in a series that we've been calling Get Wisdom, and this is part number seven to that series. And we have been growing in wisdom. How many of you feel like you've grown in wisdom since we started this some time ago? I know I have. I told someone the other day, I think this sermon, these sermons have been really good for me, right? It yanks the slack out of my chain on some things. And um, if we want to come up in wisdom, we really have no excuse not to. We have an entire book given to us just full of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, not to mention the entire Bible. And we know that Jesus Christ has been made wisdom for us, is what it tells us in Corinthians, and that he has given all things unto us for life and godliness, and part of that is wisdom. We know James says if you lack wisdom, that we have to ask for it. So my point is, is there is an absolute overabundance of wisdom available to you, whether you walk in it or not, is an entirely different subject. It's already been given and released for you, but are you taking it and laying hold of it for yourself? So let's look in Proverbs chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Listen, sons, to a father's discipline, and pay attention so that you may gain understanding. So listen tonight, pay attention, and then you can gain an understanding. For I'm giving you good instruction. Don't abandon my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender and precious to my mother, he taught me and said, your heart must hold on to my words. Your heart, someone say, my heart holds on to your words. There's life in those words. Here he says, keep my commands and live. Let's say that. I keep your commands and I live. Verse 5, this has been a key verse for us in this series. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Don't forget or turn away from the words from my mouth. Don't abandon wisdom and she will watch over you. Love her and she will guard you. You know, there is protection in wisdom. If you'll yield to wisdom, we saw that we're supposed to call out to wisdom. We read how wisdom calls out to us. And I, I do that regularly. I will be driving in my car by myself or, or after everyone's gone to bed. I'm, I shout to wisdom. I say, wisdom, come. Make your home with me. Understanding, come to me. You know, I figure if I'm, if I'm going to do something, I might as well do it right. None of this timidity, right? Just shout it. Be bold. Expect that it's coming. The word says to call out for wisdom, to lift up. In Proverbs chapter 2, it says lift up your voice for it. But most times we read this as you know, poetry. I don't know. So I should think about it. No, you should call out for it. And if you don't call out for it, then why should you have it if you're not even willing to follow the instructions? I told you, it's yanking the slack out of some of our chains, including mine. You realize that you're your own best preacher. You're the best preacher you can ever hear. You to, for you to say the word of God and the truth of God, for it to come out of your mouth and for your own ear to hear it, it anchors itself into your soul more deeply than it will by hearing someone else say it. It's important to speak out the truths and wisdom of God over your life. It's important to declare things over your life. You know, you cannot think one thing and say a different thing at the same time. Some of you will just get victory in your thought life if you'll just simply start that one principle. 
When you begin to think things that you shouldn't think, take those thoughts captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and begin a different conversation out loud with yourself. And if you go, yeah, but people are going to think I'm crazy. Well, then put one of those Bluetooth things in your ear and they'll think you're on the phone, right? Have some wisdom. But talk to yourself because what will happen is your brain now has to follow what it's saying and hearing. And it will leave that useless thought that was trying to plague you. All right, let's go back to verse, don't abandon wisdom, verse 6. She'll watch over you, love her, she will guard you. Wisdom is supreme. Now, why is wisdom supreme? We, we looked at and we recognized that the reason wisdom is supreme, because in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that be, walk as wise, not as unwise. And then it says, don't be foolish, but know what the will of God is. The wisdom of God is you knowing what God's will is for your situation. Whether it's buying a car, whether it's where you move, moving to a different country, whatever it is, the wisdom of God for you is His will for you. And once you find out what He wants for you and what He wants you to do, this is you now having the knowledge, having the wisdom that He gives to you to be able to walk it out. So that's why wisdom is supreme. Because knowing what God wants you to do is supreme. So get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. And if you embrace her, she will honor you. She will place a garland of favor on your head. She will give you a crown of beauty. So we are to get wisdom. Wisdom has been given to us in Jesus, is what Scripture said. He was made righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption for us. It says God made him those four things for us. So if he was made wisdom for you, then that means all the wisdom that you need for your workplace, for your relationships, for your finances, for where you should go to church, whatever, all the wisdom you need has already been given to you. Because Jesus was given to us 2,000 years ago. The Lord is not sitting in heaven when you pray and ask for wisdom thinking, man, should I send this envelope of wisdom down to him? No, it's already been released in Jesus. We have to just put our faith over to receiving what he's made available to us through his spirit who lives in us, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom that abides in us and tap into that rather than into the price tag that you're looking at or or do I like that place or do I not like it and start getting the heartbeat, the will of God for the wisdom of God. But you have to get it. See, the point is the responsibility is on you and me to get it. It's already been given. Whether or not you take a hold of it is another story. You know, when someone says that the food's ready, come and get it. If you just stay on the couch and go, well, I believe I receive... I believe, I receive, I'm full. Thank you, Lord, bless you. You're just going to use your words and not put any action to it. Faith without works is dead. You need the faith, you need the words, but while I'm getting up off the couch, I'm saying, bless the Lord for this food. And I'm headed to the table. And then what happens next? I reach out and I take what's in front of me. No one has to tell me twice, I'm going to get it. Well, how about wisdom? Are we getting it? Are we laying hold of it? Are we appropriating it and taking it as our own? We examined and looked at wisdom and we we realized that wisdom, the word wisdom means skillful. Skillful. And, And godly wisdom is divine skill on how and when to use the knowledge and understanding that you have. 
In fact, Ecclesiastes um, 8, 5, it says this, a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. The right time and place. The right way and the right how. All right? It knows the time and place. And we recognize that Knowledge and understanding and wisdom are all three different things. Knowledge is what you know. Understanding is insight into what you know. And wisdom is using that knowledge and understanding skillfully. We ask the question, how do we get wisdom? And then sermon after sermon, we've been talking about how we get it. We looked at, we we understood that we have to hunger for it. We have to desire for it. You know, Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. So the, the responsibility to ask is on you and me. Then, he, then we looked and, and understood that we have to be teachable. We have to hunger for it. We have to ask for it. Ask and you shall receive. And then we have to be pliable, teachable. We have to be willing to receive instruction, teaching, correction, rebuke. In fact, Proverbs is quite full of, of th- verses about this, about people that either love or hate rebuke. And the wise man loves life-giving rebuke. The fool rejects it and turns away from it. We looked at Scripture on this as well about guarding your mouth, to watch your words. We we said we need to learn to shut up. That's part of wisdom. Be quiet. In fact, Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see someone who speaks too soon? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So you you want to be a fool? Just talk too quickly, too often. Then last week we looked at wisdom coming to us, but through counsel or advice. That we are to, the wise man seeks counsel. The wise man looks to gain understanding from others. In fact, in Proverbs 13.20, we read this verse last week. It says, the one who walks with the wise will become wise. If you want to be wise, here's how you do it. You walk with people that are wise. You say, well, what if I don't want to be wise? Well, there's instructions for that too. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's your choice. You can be harmed or walk with the wise. I know walking with the wise is better. I've tried both sides of it, and I'm here to tell you wisdom is better. All right? So find wise friends. Find friends that are going to pull you in the right direction instead of pull you to the Lord rather than away from the Lord. And we talked about how some people say, yeah, but Jesus, he hung out with sinners and prostitutes and all the tax collectors and all this thing. Yeah, he did, but he didn't go to them for friendship. He went to them to minister to them. His disciples were who he hung out with. They were his close, intimate circle. See, who we fellowship with can and will make a huge difference in your life. Because they'll rub off on you and you'll become like them. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said to the church, he said, don't be deceived. Now, why would he say that? Because this is a point of deception. People are easily duped on this. Deceived about what? He says, bad company corrupts good morals. So if you have good morals and if you want to be corrupted, hang around bad morals. Remember, we we read about how the officials looked at Peter and John after that healing at the Gate Beautiful in Acts. And they, Peter started answering them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he answered with such wisdom and so much of anointing was on what he said. It said they looked at these disciples and marveled because they're just dumb, ignorant, backwoods, rednecks. 
right? Fishermen. That's what it says. I mean, it doesn't say rednecks. I'm adding that in. But, you know, they're just these backwards guys. They're uneducated and ignorant. And they marveled because they realized they'd been with Jesus. Now, if you want to argue and say, well, who I hang out with doesn't matter. Would you say that it matters if you hang out with Jesus? Well, yeah, sure. Of course, hanging out with Jesus will make a difference in my life. Well, then why wouldn't it on the flip side? It will. It'll work both ways. So what type of friends are you hanging with? Because those friends will give you counsel. And they'll give you advice. Those that are closest to you speak into your life. Let's ask it a different direction. What kind of friend are you? you got to judge yourself too, right? What kind of friend am I? All right, we're going to go further now into this. And we're going to look at pride and deception, humility and wisdom. And how these two, pride and humility, how they just wind up in different places and, and, and go different directions and with different results. And pride and humility are such big, big deals. I mean, it is a big deal. Pride will just absolutely bring you to ruin. Might not the first day or the first week, but in time, it will be your destruction. And humility will actually be a deliverance for you, and you'll be exalted and honored, and we'll see scriptures for that. Go with me over to Proverbs chapter 11, and let's jump in there on this. Um, If you're putting it up on the screen, put it up in the NIV, please. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace or shame. So when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. With humility comes wisdom. Do you want wisdom? Then you have to be humble. So, well, what is being humble? Well, I think that's something that we have kind of We've lost sight sometimes of what humility is. You know, one of the marks of being humble is being teachable. Being willing to listen before you voice your opinion. One of the marks of being humble is giving ear to people. Now, there are people that you shouldn't give an ear to, right? We, we looked at that as well. Don't listen to the fool. But we need to be quick to hear. And a lot of people have the wrong idea about humility. In fact... You know, you probably heard that old story about how, you know, one of the guys in the church, they gave him like the most humble pin. And so he started wearing the most humble pin. And so then they took it away from him because he wore it. (laughs) And so people think that, you know, you could never you could never agree to being humble. Really? No, we should say that about ourselves. We should say I am humble and then be humble. Right. Act humble. Moses, he wrote that he was the most humble man in all the earth. And he wrote it. Right? That kind of goes against our thinking, right? And so what is humility? What is being humble? Well, being humble simply means that God's... If, if you're humble, we're going to look at Scripture on this in a bit. But that God gives grace to those who are humble. God's help, God's empowerment, God's abilities come to those who are humble. And if you're humble, I like to... I like to tell myself um, this way, that true humility is when I know who I am in Christ. When I know who's, what, and why I am in Christ, with the Lord. 
That's true humility because all the focus is off of me. Not being humble is when I'm on my own. I mean, that if you just look at those two sides, true humility is who I am in Christ and not being humble, not being graced is when I am on my own. All right, where were we? Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. In Proverbs 3, 7, it says, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's another Proverbs that says, Let another man's lips praise you. You know, Albert Barnes, he, in his commentary, he wrote this. He said, The great hindrance to all true wisdom is the thought... That we've already attained it. See, if you think you already know, you're not going to be teachable. You're not going to be pliable. You're not going to be correctable. No, I already know that. I remember I was, this was back in 2000, and um, I was working for a hardwood flooring company at that time in Colorado. And it was one of the premier companies in the Grand Junction Valley there. And it, it didn't take me long because I had been running my own company in Missouri before I moved to Colorado. It didn't take me long until they put me in as the foreman of this company. And we had, I don't know, a number of people working for us. And one day, a new guy signs up, comes to work, and they send him out with me so that I could train him. And we get to the job, and this guy is a blowhard. You know what I mean? I mean, he knows everything already. And he's been doing floors for like one year. I mean, at this point, I'd been doing floors for uh, a number of years. And so he comes in and, and, and I explain to him, here's how we want things done. No, but he always had a better way. And no matter what I would try to tell him, yeah, but that's not this and that, he just was completely unteachable. And on this job site we were at, it had an entryway coming into the house. And on each side of the entryway was a room. One room, they were, they were shaped the same. One was just a little bigger. And so I took the bigger room, there's more, it's more work, okay? He took the smaller room and I told him, I explained to him, here's what, here's what the owner of the company wants, here's what he wants it to look like. You know, there's certain rules and regulations about how to stagger your joints so that you don't get a stair-step looking joint pattern across the floor, things like that. And so I explained this to him and he just wouldn't hear and he kept arguing with me and, and he knows a better way and he this and he that. And so finally I said, okay, I'll tell you what. You do your floor how you want to do it. I'm going to do mine the way we're supposed to do it. And at the end of the day, we'll see where we're at. Oh, man, he's going to, you'll be, you'll just be shocked at how fast I'm going to outwork you. Okay. I mean, we don't have a problem with fast work. And so we both go to work. At the end of the day, my room is done. I'm cleaned up. And he's about three quarters of the way done with his room. And needless to say, I had the bigger room. And so I come into his room and he has broken pretty much every rule that we have about what a floor is supposed to look like. We ended up tearing the floor out. And so I said, all right, this isn't going to work. As we need to tear it out, we're going to start over. It made him mad. And so he had some choice words for me and uh, words we can't say here. And um, so the next day he comes back to work. And I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Today, you're going to do what I tell you to do. I don't want to hear one time that you know a better way. Because today, you're going to learn to do it the way we want it done. And he started arguing with me. 
So I said, pack your tools and get off the job. And fired him right there on the spot. Well, then he really started cussing at me. And is he teachable? No. And so he grabs all his tools and goes storming off to the boss's house. And uh, they met him at the door with his final check and said, beat it. <laughs> it didn't end well for him in that, in that arena. Why? Because he wasn't teachable. Because he wasn't humble. And because he wasn't, you know, I even, I called our boss and said, here's what I'm dealing with. I mean, the owner, you know, how, how would you like for me to handle it? Here's my recommendation. And, um, and that's how we handle it. But the point was, is stay teachable. Even if you've been doing it for a long time, if someone comes and says, well, have you looked this? Have you considered this? Give them an ear, listen to them, you know, stay teachable. It, it's the old the old codgers, a lot of times, and I don't mean just in age, I mean someone who's done something for a while, they're old codgers on the inside, they get stuck on being right, they get stuck on having to do it a certain way, they get stuck in being right. Now, my way is right. And they're more interested in being right, or that they are proved to be right, than what's actually truth or right. And so, let's stay flexible and teachable and instructable and correctable and even life-giving rebuke we're going to receive. In fact, turn over there, Proverbs 15, verse 31. It says, the one who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. And it means to, that word is to dwell among the wise or abide, like staying there, remain among the wise. The one who listens to life-giving rebukes remains among the wise. So to be that kind of person that would receive a life-giving rebuke, what kind of person are we going to have to be? Humble. Because it's the first thing pride is going to do is, wow, dare they. They'll be humble. Verse 32, anyone who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. You ignore the correction, you despise yourself. Listen to it, and you acquire wisdom, good sense. Verse 33, the fear of the Lord is what wisdom teaches. And humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. I mean, probably all of us like to be honored. Right? That's something that the Lord has put into you. It's why we're taught to honor each other. To be honorable. Yet, if you really would like to be honored, then you need to make yourself the least instead of the greatest. Be the servant of all. And Jesus said that person would be honored. Not those who are lording it over you. You know, humility, uh, <laughs> yeah. Humility is your protection. Being humble will protect you from being deceived. Humility is your protection from destruction and deception or deception comes first and then destruction pride on the other hand leads to deception because you think i'm right and nobody can tell me and so now you are self-deceived and that leads to destruction and a fall in fact in in obadiah 1 3 it makes a statement it says the pride of your heart has deceived you the pride of your heart has deceived you now, that's another thing. Watch out for people that flatter you, that appeal to your pride. 
Watch out for people that are appealing to your pride. Why do I say that? Because they're not looking to help you. They're looking to gain something. They're looking to benefit from you rather than actually speaking life to you. There's a difference between speaking life and just flattering someone to make, you know, well, we're just going to butter them up. Proverbs 16, 18, 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride comes before destruction. In chapter 18, in verse 12, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. What happens to a prideful heart? Well, it becomes unteachable. You can't correct it. You can't instruct it. It won't listen. just does what it wants to do. Pride comes before destruction. Arrogant spirit before a fall. So before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. Chapter 29, verse 23. A person's pride will humble him. Either you can humble yourself or you can be humbled. Humbling yourself is the better choice. All right? Humbling yourself is the better choice. A person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. What are we talking about? We're still talking about getting wisdom. And if you want wisdom, you have to be humble. I have to be humble. If we want to walk in God-given wisdom, then we have to be pliable and teachable. Let's go over to James chapter 4, and let's look at this. We're talking about getting wisdom through humility. In James chapter 4, in verse 6, it says, He gives greater grace. It's speaking of God. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Well, didn't we just read scripture about a person's pride will humble him? I mean, that's one thing. That's one level of resistance, your own pride working against you. Because usually pride is pretty easy to see. You can see it from a mile away. Well, that's one thing to have your pride working against you. It's entirely another whole realm once you get God involved working against you. He resists the proud. Doesn't help them. He fights against them. Resists the proud. But the flip side of it is, is that he gives grace to the humble. Now, what is grace? It's God's ability, God's empowerment, God doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself. By grace, we are saved. Could you save yourself? No. So he's doing something for you that you can't do for you. He's empowering you to do something that you couldn't do on your own power. He is giving you the ability, His ability, to overcome or to go through or whatever it is. His grace always leads to victory. Did you hear me? This whole idea that, oh, God's given me the grace to bump and suffer along. No. No, you're doing that on your own. God's grace will lead to victory. Grace is not a cover-up. Grace is an empowerment. And if we humble ourselves before the Lord, now He's saying, I'm here to help you. He gives grace to the humble. Remember Moses where it said that he was the most humble man in all the earth? That's in Numbers 12.3 if you, if you want to know where it is. It says, more so than anyone else in the face of the earth. 
But guess what? Moses was, if you read the scripture, read that chapter, you'll see that he was also the most used man on all the earth by the Lord. The humble get the grace. Another way to say it is those that are graced get used by the Lord. Because he's helping them. He's empowering them. So we have to be humble. Let's say it a different way. God gives wisdom to the humble. Because grace, wisdom is part of grace. Something that you couldn't know on your own. And he gives wisdom to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. doesn't say he'll flee from God. He'll flee from you. Why does it say it that way? Because you're submitted to God. You're now in his authority. And when you operate in God's authority and in God's empowerment, the devil can't tell the difference between you and him. Because you're operating in his authority. And the devil flees from you. Look down in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. If you humble yourself, now it's not your job to humble others. Humble yourself before the Lord. Not humble your spouse before the Lord. Or humble my antagonist before the Lord. No, humble yourself before the Lord. And He will lift you up. He will exalt you. He will promote you. I mean, just take this right over and put it into your workplace. In your workplace, humble yourself before the Lord. Look to the Lord to be your source, to be your, your provision, all of those things. And let Him exalt you. Let Him put, lift you up. Let Him promote you. Put your pressure on Him, not on man. Let's look at an example. Let's go over to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings, um, the example that we're going to, yeah, we're going to start in 11 and we'll go to verse chapter 12 shortly. But here in 1 Kings 11, remember, we've used Solomon over and over and over about his wisdom. I mean, he had more wisdom than anybody else. Everyone was coming to him. The word says no one, no one had wisdom like he did. And he had more wisdom than the kings of, of the Far East. He had more wisdom than the wisest people of Egypt. And that no one got close to his wisdom. And God gave that to him because he asked for it. Well, look now in chapter 11. We're near the end of of Solomon's life. And Solomon has some problems. Because pride, I believe, was one of them. How can the wisest man in the earth get into pride? I don't care how much wisdom God gives you. If you get away from God and recognizing Him as the giver of all these good things, you'll get into pride. Got to keep the main thing the main thing. Him. And so here we look in in verse 1 of chapter 11. King Solomon, and this is important to understand, just because there's a man of God, a woman of God that you really admire and look up to and that they've been really instrumental in your life, you still, it's still your responsibility to what they say to you to measure it out by the word. Is it right? Is it accurate? It's still your responsibility to realize that they are a human being just like you. That's the problem with them because they're like you. They're prone to make mistakes. And if you hang around any person long enough, you're going to be let down by them. You're going to have hurts from them because they're human too, like you. And what happens, sometimes people put so much confidence in the individual rather than in the Lord that when somebody shipwrecks, then they shipwreck as well. 
I mean, think of Ravi Zacharias. You know, there was a lot of people hurt over that whole thing and injured and, and were like, well, you know, we, he, he, they, were, they were looking at him more than they were looking at the Lord. And so we don't want to, Solomon here, wisest man in the earth, he didn't end well. So don't put too much confidence in man. Put your confidence in the Lord. He's your teacher. He's your guide. In verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. You must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princes and 300 who were concubines and they turned his heart away. I've always wondered, how can the wisest man in the world have that many wives? Don't seem very wise to me. (laughs) Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. See, rarely will you walk away from the Lord all in one day out of the blue. It's usually a progression. It's usually been working for a long time. And finally, you find yourself there. You know, affairs don't happen just in a moment. There's groundwork that happens before it. You know, I heard one guy say it this way. He said, you know, wild horses couldn't cause me to to cheat on my wife today. He said, but today I could make a decision that would ultimately end up in me cheating on my wife. Well, look at Solomon. He didn't walk away from the Lord, you know, on the first day that he got all these women. It was later, it says, after some time had accumulated, when he was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon, this is in verse 5, Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Amorites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. In one place it even says that he made his children go through the fire. Is there some sort of child torture, sacrifice, I don't know what it was. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord and the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods. But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However... I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. What was Solomon's problem? Well, he didn't have First John two fifteen through 17 like we do today. right? But he did have the wisdom of God and he knew that what he was doing was wrong. He wasn't doing it in ignorance. You know, First John, we could say, well, Solomon was proud. Well, there was something else also at work in him. And that was is he had a love of the world in his heart. And in First in, in John two fifteen, just reading for you and I and for our life today, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, we see that in, in Solomon's life. So let's be checking our life. Where do we have that going on? For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, so that's what you feel, your comfort, what you see, what you desire, and the pride of one's possessions, or one translation says the pride of, the pride of what you have and do, the pride of one's possessions, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And all the world with this lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Solomon fell into all three of those things. Look over now in verse 29 of chapter 11, still in First Kings. Verse 29. During that time, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met Jeroboam on the road as Jeroboam came out of Jerusalem. Now, Ahijah had wrapped himself in a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in the open field. Then Ahijah took a hold of the new cloak he had on, tore it into twelve pieces, and said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will give you ten tribes, but one tribe will remain his for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I chose out of all the tribes of Israel. For they have abandoned me, and they have bowed down to Ashtoreth, the god, goddess of the Sidonians, and to Chemosh, the god of Moab, and to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight and to carry out my statutes and my judgments as his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from him, but will let him be ruler over on and on and on. So what's happening here? He is giving him a word of the Lord, right? Solomon is being judged and things have shifted. If you look down into verse 40, Solomon must have got word of this. He says Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt to King Shishak of Egypt where he remained until Solomon's death. Look now down into chapter 12. Then Rehoboam, now this is Solomon's son. He's 40 years old. He's been with his dad for a while. He's had opportunity to grow in wisdom, to watch how he does things. And so Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Solomon had died. When Jeroboam, remember he'd gone to Egypt because Solomon was going to kill him. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, he stayed in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon's presence. Jeroboam stayed in Egypt. But they summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father, Solomon, made our yoke harsh. You, therefore, lighten your father's service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. There's some wisdom for for young Rehoboam, 41-year-old 40, Rehoboam. There's some wisdom for him. The wisdom of God right here, served up to him on a platter. So, verse 5, Rehoboam replied, Go away for three days and then return to me. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, How do you advise me to respond to this people? They replied, Today, if you will be a servant to this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. Now, this is godly wisdom. Remember, these were Solomon's advisors, and they had just spent a whole lifetime with Solomon. 
advising him. And Solomon, being the wisest man in, in the world, he had chosen these guys because he must have thought they were wise too. And so these guys are giving young, untested, unexperienced Rehoboam some advice, saying, here's, here's how you win this situation. And so Rehoboam, it says, but he, in verse 8, he rejected the advice of the elders who had advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and attending him, attended him. So rather than listen to these old guys, he decided, I'm going to go back to my friends. I'm going to go to the crowd I grew up with, the guys I run with. What do they say about this? Remember last week we were talking about the friends you hang out with? Well, he's been hanging out with the wrong people. Is this going to affect him and a whole lot of other people too? Yes. In fact, I mean, it has huge consequences. Let's just keep reading here. Um, so he rejects this. And then in verse 9, he asked these young, his friends, what message do you advise that we send back to this people who said to me, lighten the yoke of your, your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him told him. Now just think about these young men for a moment. Finally, finally, the old man has died. Solomon died. Now Rehoboam's going to be king. And we're his buddies. Man, he's going to put us in places of leadership, places of honor. We're going to be governors. We're going to be princes. Man, um, money's going to flow into the bank. This is going to be great. So they are looking for what they're going to get from it, not for what the people are, Rehoboam would benefit from it. And so the young man who had grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. That's what the people had said. This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Flattery. Do you see that? Ah, your dad has nothing on you. In fact, shoot, your little finger's as big as his waist. Your dad doesn't hold a candle on you. Come on, you're much better than him. You're bigger than him. You're wiser than him. You're going to rule in glory much better than your dad. They're buttering him up. They're flattering him. And it's not for any good purpose. What happened to next? What else did they say? He says, you're, you're a lot heavier than your dad. Although my father burdened... This is what else they're telling him. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips, with scorpions. But that was also what they, how, what they called their barbed whips. I will discipline you. I'm going to do it worse. Man, you thought you had it bad before? It's going to get really tough now. I'll show you guys who's boss. Isn't he just full of pride right here? Because this is what he does. He takes their advice and he goes out and he tells the people that. They return to him on the third day. And in verse 13, then the king answered the people harshly. Everyone say harshly. He rejected the advice the elders had given him and spoke to them according to the young men's advice. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. The king did not listen to the people because this turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered him, What portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. Israel, return to your tents. Go home. David, you look after yourself. David's household, which is Rehoboam, tribe of Judah. And then we see down in verse 18, King Rehoboam sent, apparently, 
the slave driver, uh, Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor. But all the, if you remember, he said it's going to get a lot worse, a lot heavier. He's going to come out with barbed whips. And it says all the Israelites got together and stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam managed to get into his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. And so the kingdoms divided that day because he listened to the wrong advice because he ran with the wrong people. And because he listened, allowed flattery to stoke his ego rather than listening to true wisdom that would have brought restoration. And we, we recognize that, well, you know, if you, if you keep reading in the story, Rehoboam, Jeroboam's now king and Rehoboam decides he's going to gather 180,000 soldiers together and they're going to go attack Israel and, and the Lord sent some, a word to them through a prophet and said, no, you guys don't go. This was of me and you stay at home, go home. And they listened to the Lord. They actually listened and went home. Maybe he's learning a little bit and realizing that, oh, maybe, maybe these guys that are advising me aren't as smart as they thought they were. Let's go to James 3. James 3. See, we have to, we must learn to identify godly wisdom versus other wisdom. You know, we, we recognized before that there's four sources to wisdom. There is wisdom from above, that's godly wisdom. There is wisdom, devilish wisdom, that's the opposite end of it. And there's wisdom that's earthly and worldly, it's just natural wisdom. Let's, let's just go to James 3 here and we'll read about it. In verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct he should show that his works are done in gentleness, that comes from wisdom. See, one of the marks of wisdom is going to be gentleness. Gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, pride, okay, that's what selfish ambition is, selfishness and pride, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom, another wisdom that's motivated by envy or selfish ambition, by pride, such wisdom does not come down from above, so that's one place wisdom comes from, but is earthly. So the wisdom of the earth. And there's unspiritual wisdom listed, which is just natural or fleshly wisdom. And then there's demonic wisdom listed. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder, confusion, and every evil practice. So you need to start paying attention to the results of where you're getting your input. Is it full of disorder? Is it full of strife? Is it full of pride? Is it full of envy? Is it, you know, because where those things are, it says that every evil will be as well. It's not a good place to be. Look in verse 17. But, here's the other side of it. The wisdom from above, the godly wisdom, is first pure. It's pure. It doesn't have hidden motives. It's just pure. Then peace-loving. It's looking to establish peace. It's gentle. Wisdom from above is gentle. If you're listening to someone and you're asking someone for wisdom, this is what, this is what you measure it against. Is it these things? Because if it's not these things, then it's probably motivated by one of the other things. This is how we... We're talking about getting wisdom, right? We get wisdom by getting counsel. One of the ways that we, but we have to 
judge that counsel against the word? Does it fit into this way? Is it gentle? Is it compliant? Is it full of mercy and good fruits? Is it unwavering? Is it this one day and then this the other day? Back and forth. I don't know. Without pretense. Right? Without pretense. Without hypocrisy. It's not pretending. Measure the wisdom, the counsel that you get by that right there. Is it these things? Now, I'm going to say this too. You have to be wise enough to recognize that the measurement to is it peaceful, is it gentle, is it kind, is not your feelings. That's not the measurement. Is it life-giving rebuke? Because no rebuke feels nice. The Lord said no discipline is enjoyable in the moment. Right? So rebuke doesn't necessarily feel nice. So you have to look past the feeling of it. And you have to look at what is this? Is this truth? Is this from you, Lord? Go over to Daniel. Because, see, if you just went by the feeling of it, quite certain that some of the Pharisees and some of the money changers and some of the auctioneers and salesmen that were in the temple when Jesus chased them out with a whip and kicked their tables over, pretty sure they would have said, well, that wasn't hard. I mean, that was harsh. That wasn't peaceful. That wasn't kind. That wasn't full of mercy. So clearly he doesn't have the wisdom of God. No, hold up. There's also righteousness and justice that comes into play into this. And so don't get the wrong idea when you read peaceful. We're talking about peace that establishes kingdom of God peace. That may require throwing someone out the door. Yeah, I don't know if that went over so well, but Daniel chapter 1. Go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, he was someone else in Scripture that was looked at as wise. Daniel had the wisdom of God on him, and it's an amazing story. You read the first six chapters of Daniel, and, and you'll really be blessed. Let's just jump. So what had happened is King... Um, Nebuchadnezzar had come in and invaded Jerusalem and he had carried off uh, some of the sons of Israel, some of the royal family, the princes. And amongst these young men were, excuse me, Daniel and his friends. And when you look at in verse eight, so they got taken back and they are supposed to now be assimilated into the Chaldean culture in language and dress and how they act and what they eat, everything. They're supposed to have three years of training as being assimilated into the Chaldean, become Chaldeans, okay? And then they're going to go serve the king and serve in the king's court. So their, their guardians have, have gotten their instructions on what they're supposed to eat, all these things. But in verse 11, it says, so Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8, Daniel determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. He determined that he's not going to do this. He's not going to defile himself. But watch how he responds to those in authority over him. Remember, Daniel did not have rights. He had zero rights. He's a captive. He has zero rights. He can't walk in and go, well, how dare you? Remember, Paul, he he demanded some rights. He's like, is it lawful for you to give me a whipping? I'm a Roman citizen. 
right? So he used the rights that were available to him. Another time they were thrown, him and Silas were thrown into the inner prison and then they were going to secretly release him. He's like, no, this wasn't unlawfully. They're going to come apologize. And they came down and, and released him. So there's a time and place for both sides of this. But Daniel doesn't have rights. He's a captive. And so, but he determined in his heart, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to eat this stuff. I'm not going to let them put something in my body that would defile me. Think vaccines, right? So he makes this determination. And notice that he doesn't go to the guard and say, I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. No, he went with wisdom. He went and approached this situation with wisdom. He had determined, now he's not going to give. If this guy says no, as we'll see in the story he did, he goes to the next guy and entreats him. And if he would have said no, if push would have come to shove, he wouldn't have defiled himself. He would have died before he would have done that. Eventually he would have refused. We know that. We have the story of, of those, three, or those three young men at the fiery furnace. We have the story of Daniel going to the lion's den. Death got nothing on me, Right? He is going, he's not going to defile himself. So the determination has been made. But let's look at the wisdom that he walked in. So he goes down into, um, we're still in verse 8. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I mean, this guy liked Daniel. He said, man, I don't know, man. I, I, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink when he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men. That you would endanger my head, endanger my life with the king. You know, I, I'm just trying to survive here. I'm just trying to keep my job. And so go ahead and get the vaccine. I know. This fits really well today. And he's like, huh, shoot, strike out on that one. Next. So Daniel doesn't take no for an answer. He goes in verse 11. He goes to Melzar. He, he's the butler or called the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. He says, please. Everyone say, please. Notice he didn't go in demanding. Wisdom isn't pushy like that. He went in building rapport with this guy. He says, please test your servants for 10 days. See, now he has a different approach than he did the last guy. He's fine-tuned it with God's wisdom. Before, he was just like, hey, can we be vegetarians? I'd tell him no, too. And <laughs> Can we be vegetarians? He's like, no. It'd put my life in danger. So now he goes to the next guy, and he's like, hey, could we please be vegetarians for 10 days? I mean, we, we can't suffer that much in 10 days. If, if we're going to be any less than the other guys in 10 days, then you do what you see fit. But 10 days isn't enough time for us to really get bad off to where your life would be in danger. So he's using God's wisdom and he entreats this guy. And look at what happens. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier. The word means fatter in flesh than all the young men who were eating the king's food. God helped them. This is God's grace. Because of their obedience and their commitment to putting God first, God worked a miracle and caused them to get fatter off of vegetables. Most people say eat vegetables to lose weight. These guys ate vegetables, gained weight. They looked better. They looked healthier. They looked fatter in flesh is the literal translation. One of the reasons I won't eat just vegetables. I don't want to gain weight. 
They were fatter, healthier, better looking than all the other guys that were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Like, yeah, yeah, this is working. This will look good for us. Go ahead. We'll just give you, eat what you want. And so here's what God did for these guys. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Because they committed themselves, they submitted themselves to the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. This is what they had done. And they acted in humility. They went and entreated these guys, hey, could we please do this? Right? Acted in humility. And now they've got knowledge, understanding, and wisdom from the Lord. Says Dad, Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. You know, even the weird pizza dreams he understood. What those things were. And verse 18, at the end of time that the king had said to present them, this is after three years, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them. And among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they began to attend the king in every matter of wisdom. Someone say wisdom. In Every issue of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and medians in his entire kingdom. Ten times more wisdom. Ten times more understanding. Ten times more knowledge. Because they stayed humble. And notice these guys, it makes a difference who you hang with. These three men, it doesn't say that his friends determined in their heart they weren't going to eat anything. It says Daniel determined in his heart he wasn't going to eat this food. And the next thing you see, he's got friends with him. But there was a whole group of guys that were eating the food. That weren't hanging with Daniel and his three friends. And so Daniel and his three friends, don't tell me that humility won't make a huge difference. That obedience to the word won't make a ten times difference. And the Lord exalted them. You know, if you look into chapter 2, you see, you see that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And, but he doesn't remember what the dream was. Anyone have one of those? You know, where you get up in the morning, you're like, I had a dream last. Well, what is it? I don't remember what it was. And so, because he's king and because he can, he calls in all his magicians and says, okay, guys, tell me what I dreamed because I don't remember what I dreamed. And they're all like, no, gang, it don't work that way. You tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. See, because we can make anything up we want. And he won't know. But if I tell you you dreamed something you didn't dream, you'll know that. So it's like, doesn't work that way, king. Tell us what you dreamed. And the king's like, no. You tell me what I dreamed. And then also tell me the meaning. And they go back and forth, yes, no, yes, no. Finally, the king is just fed up. He's angry and he's like, all right, off with your head. All of you. All of y'all. Off with your head. And so the guards go out and they're going, they're going out to kill all the wise men. Daniel and his three friends are included in this. And if you look down into verse 13 of chapter 2, the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. They weren't showing up to deliver them the news. They were showing up to kill them. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Notice this. This is wisdom. Daniel hadn't even been there in that group of people in front of the king. 
Daniel could have been like, well, how dare you? Come on, I've, I've been ten times better than all these other guys. Why, why would you just come out here and assume you're going to kill me? Come on, you know me better than that. I, the Lord's given me dreams and visions that I can translate any of them. You know better than that. How, how dare you try to think that you're going to come out here and off with my head? I wasn't even in there in front of the king. Why are you blaming me for what they did? He didn't do any of that. Instead, he responded with tact and discretion. Good to do when your head's on the line. The captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon, he asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh or so hasty? Why so harsh? And so Arioch stops, puts the sword away, explains the situation. Here's what's going on. See, they didn't even know what was going on. And so he explains what happened. So Daniel went, and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king an interpretation. So he must have asked the guard. He said, hey, look, take me to the king. Go with me to the king. I'm not trying to escape. But I think I can give him what he's looking for. And so now Daniel comes home in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, told his friends and about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. Help! So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heaven and declared, and he had a whole bunch there. So the next day, he goes in before, uh, in verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, the guard, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I mean, if you're Arioch, you're probably thinking, boy, I hope you know what you're talking about because I'm getting an audience with the king for you. Arioch probably had something on the line here at this point. And he says, I've found a man among the Judean exiles who can, who can tell you the interpretation. And so he sees Daniel and Daniel tells him in verse 27. Again, humility. We've already established Daniel is wise. In fact, if you look in chapter, chapter 6 of Daniel, where he's with Darius, it says that the Lord had given him an excellent spirit, a spirit of excellence. That's part of wisdom. Excellence. The Queen of Sheba, her breath was taken away at the excellence by which Solomon did things. A spirit of excellence. So we know that Daniel was wise, that he had this spirit of excellence. Well, look down here in verse 28, or verse 27. Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. And then he begins to tell him what his dream was. And in verse 30, or he, he doesn't tell him the dream yet, he's just getting ready to. In verse 30 he says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living. Is this humility? He's saying, it's not because I'm special. It's not because I've got it figured out, or I know so much, or I'm so wise. He's giving credit to who it belongs to, to the Lord. We're talking humility. And the result of what happened here is he tells him, he tells him the interpretation, and the king puts him in charge of the whole kingdom. Humility before honor, but pride before destruction. In fact, if you want to see the other side of it, go over to chapter 4 of Daniel. Now, what had just happened is the fiery furnace story. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar has had some realizations 
about who God is. He knows some things now. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, he, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, this is what he said. May your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. Recognizing God. He says, how great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. And his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He's starting out well, isn't he? The problem is he didn't stay there. The problem is, is that he got into pride. And what comes after pride? Destruction, pain. And then he talks about how he had another dream. This time he remembered the dream, but he didn't know the meaning. He calls in Daniel because he says, I know that the spirit of the gods are in you and that you are so wise. And so he calls Daniel in, tells him the dream. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 4, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment. His thoughts alarmed him. And the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And so then Daniel says, well, may this dream apply to your enemies. And proceeds to tell him the dream and the meaning. And then he ends with some advice in verse 27. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. That's wisdom. Repent. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the 12 months as he walked out on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Oy, not very humble, is it? If you know what coffin dancing music is, that would be playing right now. Some of you know. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. And you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them to anyone he wants. And at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from people and all those things happened exactly like that. But here's the great thing about God is he's merciful. And he's the God of another opportunity, another opportunity. How many do you need? Some need more than others. But if you'll look down into verse 34, it says at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Look, if you get into pride, the Lord's not going to let you be off in deception and not know about it. If you're in pride and you're a man or woman of God, the Lord will send people to you to warn you. He will try to tell you by His Spirit. He'll send person after person. He'll get louder. He will try to tell you. I mean, look, He told wicked Nebuchadnezzar, a guy that doesn't even serve Him, it gave him an opportunity with a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't change his ways. And so don't be afraid of deception. Ask the Lord, Lord, Keep me from being deceived. Show me where I am deceived. If I get into deception, send someone to me to help me. Give me eyes to see it. And the Lord will. Absolutely will. This is what he said. He looked up to heaven, right? So now the pride is stripped away. My sanity returned to me. Now he can see clearly. 
He's not self-deceived anymore. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom. Look at what humility did. Boom, exalted right again. You want wisdom? Be humble. He says, and even more greatness came to me. Even more than before. Isn't God amazing? I'm really happy about that. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of Heavens because all His works are true and His ways are just and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Psalms 1 says, how happy is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. How blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the advice of the ungodly. So make sure that your advice that you're getting fits into what we read in James chapter 4. That it's, or James chapter 3, right? That it fits that profile of what, what godly advice looks like. And now we're going to close in Philippians chapter 2. And you can listen to it if you like. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Get wisdom. Get it by getting counsel. Godly counsel. From godly people. In verse 1, and, and be humble. See, humility looks for counsel. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. That's keeping the main thing the main thing, isn't it? Jesus first. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or out of pride, we could say. But in humility, everyone say humility, consider others, look to the left, look to the right. Come on, look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. Consider others as more important than yourselves. It doesn't say they are more important, but you're supposed to treat them as though they are. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. See, this kind of behavior absolutely opens yourself up for the wisdom of God to be made manifest through you. Jesus said it this way. If you want to be the greatest of all, be the servant of all. That's humility. Humility. Then verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Think like He thinks. Have His mindset is what He's saying. Verse 6. Who, Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, he didn't use it for his own benefit when God asked him to come to the earth to redeem mankind. The Father sent him on a mission. It wasn't Jesus' idea. It was the Father's idea. He sent him on a mission. And verse 7 says, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, see this, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. He's not talking about being obedient to the corrupt Roman government. 
He's talking about being obedient to God who sent him to do this. Obedient to God. In fact, at one point he said, the reason that I I go to the cross is because I love the Father. He didn't say because I love mankind so much. He said because I love the Father. And so the Father sent him on this mission. And he humbles himself to the Father, even to the point of death. You want to talk about putting self under? Like there's no more self left. It's done, gone. It died. Even to the point of death. On a cross. In other words, a curse. Like the worst of the worst of the worst. For this reason. What reason? Because he was God? No, because he humbled himself under the hand of God and obeyed the Lord. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is like, this is like exaltation on top of exaltation. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who exalted Him? God did. Jesus didn't raise Himself from the dead. God raised Him from the dead. He humbled Himself all the way to the point of death. And then from there, the Lord brought Him right back alive. He's like, nope. You thought you won. You didn't. To the devil. We win. Checkmate. And Jesus is resurrected. And it says that He brought captives out. I mean... He led this whole train out of captivity. And He now intercedes for you and me beside the Father on our behalf. Makes intercession for us. When we get into need, when we pray to the Father, Jesus is right there going, yeah, that that prayer, I, I, I gave blood for Him. So be quick to be humble. Be quick to be teachable. In any place that ask the Lord to show you where you have gotten into pride. Ask the Lord to reveal to you. He's not looking to embarrass you. He's not looking to call you out in front of people. But allow the Lord to minister to you. You know, where, where is this? Allow, be correctable even from other people. Even when you don't think they deserve to correct you. Or sit in the right place to correct you. Hear them out. Take it before the Lord. And allow the wisdom of God to come up. And grow in you. Expand in you. And those watching go, huh. He's been with Jesus. A person's pride will humble him. But a humble spirit will gain honor. And part of honor is wisdom. That's in Proverbs 29, 23. We'd read it before. Alright, you can stand with me. Father, we thank you that you've made wisdom available to us in super abundance. That you sent Jesus... To redeem us back to you. To buy us back to you. Father, we are grateful that you have given your knowledge, your understanding, your wisdom and made it available to us. So Lord, we ask you to help us receive. Give us a greater capacity. Expand our ability to receive your wisdom, Lord. We recognize you've given it, but Father, we're asking that you help us receive what you've given to us. Help us to appropriate it. In areas where we need more wisdom, or maybe we don't even know we need it, Father, I'm asking you to arrest us and show us we need your wisdom there. And Father, we just take all pride in our life. Let's say that. I put pride under the blood of Jesus. I humble myself to you, Lord, to your word 
and to your spirit. I will do what you ask of me. Father, I ask you now to just impart into every person wisdom birthed inside of them. Cause it to grow like a seed grow and that a harvest would come. A harvest of righteousness in peace. In Jesus' name and amen. Well, one way that we love God is we love on one another. So as you go, do that. Downstairs, we have a time of fellowship, some finger foods. And at the door on your way out, we're going to have some ushers that will hand you um, those papers on the voting that we talked about. Good evening, family. It's so great to see each and every one of you here tonight and very thankful that you all came out. Really, truly. I'd like to encourage you in the word of God tonight. God bless you, whoever that was. In Psalm 77, Asap was a prophet. And believe it or not, he's really in trouble. And his soul refused to be comforted, and his spirit was overwhelmed, and his eyelids wouldn't close, which meant he didn't sleep. And then he says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Have you ever been in that place where you just wonder if God fell off the throne? (laughs) Really, right? Well, if you did, it's great ending to the story. This is what he said. In my anguish, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old and I'll meditate on all your work and deeds. And I'm going to talk about your deeds. So what did Asaph do? He started turning things around and not settling to where he was. And in verse 14, 13, he says, Who is so great a God as my God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have your arms. In your arms, you have redeemed the people. He talked his way right out of his trouble. And praise and worship will do that every time. It'll bring refreshing. It'll bring you a beautiful mindset. And it doesn't matter what it is. God is bigger than all of it. He never changes. He's a father that that is rich in loving kindness and tender mercy. And all thoughts that he thinks about you are good. Amen. So let's stand up together tonight, family, and let's worship the Lord and remember all the wonderful things that he's done and put the emphasis on that.
worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you tonight. Jesus, God himself, came down on the earth and took on flesh and blood, walked on the earth, doing good, healing the sick, opening up blind eyes, casting out demons, raising the dead. Jesus, God himself, laid himself on the cross and crucified, shed his blood for each and every one of us. He did that because he loved us. He did that because he wanted to redeem us back to the Father. He experienced hell for me. He took my place. And when that was all done, he was in the tomb for three days. After three days, he arose again from the dead and visited many of his brethren to show proof that he truly was raised from the dead. And on that day, he ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, the church was born at Pentecost. And all that Jesus did for you and I, we now have that same power, same authority, same everything to be able to walk as Jesus walked on the earth. So we do as we wait for our soon coming King, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Wonderful days to be living in. I hope you're richly blessed. How about turning to your neighbor and saying, one way I love God is by loving you. Amen. Children, stay in. Well, good evening, everyone. We're so glad that you're here. And we would like to welcome you. If you're here for the very first time, can you just raise your hand so we can give you a little hand clap right here in the back? Thank you for coming out. We have um, our ushers can give you a little card and it's just a card to fill out information. If you'd like to pass that in the offering basket, tell us a little bit about yourselves. But we're glad that you're with us tonight. Amen. All right, well, we're going to prepare to return the tithe to the Lord this evening. So if you need a cash envelope, you can raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. If you're giving by a check, you can make it out to CWI or Church of the Word. And if you're giving by credit card, please fill out all of the blanks. All right, well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Did you know that God is able to bless you so abundantly that you always have everything you need and are able to give generously towards every good work. You know that? I'm in the right, okay, we're in the right church. <laughs> All right, well, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's find out what is the key to experiencing this abounding abundance. It says in verse 6, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So you can see we're in control of the kind of harvest that we reap. And, you know, sparingly and generously, that's not a fixed number. Uh, that is in relation to what you have available to you. And it's also uh, in relation to the heart you gave it in. Keep reading in verse 7. says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. So it's between you and the Lord. Well, what, what has the Lord said to you about this particular 
uh, situation or this particular ministry because you're always going to have needs around you. There's always going to be good works and ministries and organizations. What has the Lord said to you about that? And to remember that it's to God, not to man. You know, get your eyes off of the people. It's to the Lord. All right? So it says, um, give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't like a bummed-out giver. Amen? You know, like, oh, so hard, you know. It was a family heirloom, but, you know, we're suffering for Jesus. I just don't know, you know, how what's, what's going to happen. It was our last one, but, you know, everything for the Lord. Does that please the Father? No. He says he loves a cheerful giver. Well, why does he love a cheerful giver? See, when you believe in this law of sowing and reaping, you get excited. When you actually believe it, you're not bummed out. You're in, you know, hey, I'm in control of my harvest. This is exciting. Behind every uh, cheerful giver is a heart of love and a heart of faith. That'll be behind every cheerful giver. All right, keep reading. And verse 8 says, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times. So that's every circumstance. That's the Great Depression or a flourishing economy. Doesn't matter. In all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Wow. That's unlimited resources, unlimited, endless supply. As it is written, they have scattered, freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. See, our needs are met by our giving. And in Proverbs, here's a second witness to this, says the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. So we're not limited by our circumstances. We're not limited by our uh, resources. We are to look to our father who has endless supply and trust him and act on the word of God and believe it. Amen. We'll take a hold of your tithes and offerings and let's pray over those. Father, we're so thankful that we can trust you, that we can look to you to be our source. We're thankful that you have endless supply and that we're not limited to what's happening around us. We're not limited to the economy or our own smarts, but we trust you and we believe your word and we believe in the law of sowing and reaping. We thank you for it. So, Father, I just thank you that you bless these tithers, that any need in this house is met, and the answer is on the way according to your word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets, and the people will give unto the Lord. All right. um, Next men's group breakfast is going to be Saturday, November 20th. So, men, if you're interested in in showing up for that, you might want to mark your calendars and plan to come out to to that event. And just a reminder, downstairs, I'm sure most of you know, but if you weren't aware, we have a bookstore downstairs, and you are able to buy CWI T-shirts and Church of the Word coffee mugs, and there's, of course, books for sale down there. So do check that out. The T-shirts and the mugs are $10 each. And um, just wanted to let everyone know that's available downstairs. All right. Well, Karen's going to share a little bit about CityGate. That's coming up November 7th. So, Karen, you want to come and share about that?
Uh, we have a slideshow that I'd like to thank Caleb Zimmerman. Are you in here, Caleb? Okay. Thank you so much for putting that together. We really, all of us really appreciate it. If that's ready, you can start that, Katie. I love coming here because it's just so cool. Seeing the power of God move through all of these people we encounter is so amazing. And it also benefits me so much. I feel like every single time I come, my hunger and thirst for the Lord just so much increased every single time I come. Hi, my name is Sister Dorita oh. Bennett, and I'm one of the volunteers to feed the homeless. The ministry here, fantastic. I can honestly come downstairs, get prayer every time it's Sunday or any other week that are here. Um, I came here with a massive headache, and I had like two or three people praying over me. My headache went away as soon as I walked up the stairs. Um, anytime you need a free lunch, um, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, find out who this man is, because this man is awesome. I'm almost 29 years clean of cocaine use, so I am very, very grateful that I'm alive, that I am able to walk, able to shout his glorious name. So if y'all not doing anything, y'all lost, y'all got depression, oppression, y'all want to commit suicide, don't do it. Just come out your house and come to Locust Street. We're right here at 245 Locust Street Amen. in Columbia. Amen. In Jesus' name, I love you. Amen. So I got involved with City Gate as I was drawn to, to doing the food for City Gate. Plus, I've always had a heart for the poor and the needy. The food is just uh, a tool to use to open their hearts, to, to hear the, the gospel, and just to show them love. And it's just easier if you have a bag of food to, to give them, to bless them with. I needed to experience the love of God with you and my family first, and then um, you get to go out and see the excitement of people that receive this. There's so many more pictures and so many other things. So it would take so long, and we didn't want to take up too much time. But hopefully you got the heart of the ministry in that. Um, a little over two years ago here at CWI, Pastor Sid and Jen um, and a group of us interviewed a few ministries that we wanted to partner in with as a local ministry. And of all of them, we narrowed it down to CityGate. CityGate is founded by Brian and Kim Zimmerman. Many of you know them um, from Church of the Word here. They have five prayer hubs and outreaches to the poor through the giving of food and supplies and ministering the gospel. And as we're out, we send people back to these hubs, in particular two of them, for um, Bible studies, specific prayer times, and actually established churches that are there. We are involved in Lancaster, and um, those who normally go to that is Cindy and Holly and Kevin and Nathan and Paul and Sandy. In fact, Sandy heads the Lancaster Outreach up for, for us here at Church of the Word. 
The other one, and the reason why there's a limited amount that go there is because they help another church the first Sunday of the month. The rest of us go to Columbia and we hit the streets and the laundromats and the pubs and the alleys and the byways, passing out homemade lunches, encouraging the believer, comforting and praying and laying hands on people and bringing the good news of the saving faith of Jesus Christ. It's the Great Commission on a local level. Signs and wonders have followed the giving of the word. Many have been born again and healed and set free. And we have grown in character and spirit and vision, knowing that we are about the Father's business. We pray in advance as a group that we're in the right place at the right time, doing the right things with the right people, believing that the Holy Spirit is leading our steps and that he's preparing the hearts of those that we're going to speak to. And we've seen time after time just miraculous things that have happened. The Holy Spirit is the drawer. Jesus is the Savior. And we simply make ourselves available for the Father's use. So I would like to thank, and Pastor Sid and Jen as well, all of you who've been involved over the past two some year, the two two years that City Gate's been up and running, will you please stand if you have gone or made food or done anything for the ministry of City Gate? Will you please stand? Just stand. Yep. Let's thank the Father. Look around. This is our local ministry of the Great Commission, and it's an opportunity. For each and every one of you, if you've not gone to any of these places with the flags, God does not look at it any less as you're walking the streets of your neighborhood, the grocery store, Columbia or Lancaster, being the feet and hands of Jesus and allowing your heart to give out the good news that you walk in every single day of your life. So I'm going to challenge some of you who are sitting there thinking, I can't do that. Well, you can do that. And not only can you do that, you would enjoy doing that. Everyone who has gone the first time is usually coming back because they see what God is doing, not just in the people that they meet and talk to, but in their own heart. So I, I really encourage you and extend the invitation. If you've never gone, come with us to Columbia next Sunday. We meet there at 1115. We're off and running at 1130. About an hour and a half later, we meet up and we pray and thank the Father for what he did in them and in us. And we grow together as a body of Christ on the road. Amen. Thank you very much, Caleb, for that slideshow. We appreciate it. I won't be needing this again, I guess. But I don't need it. <laughs> Isn't Jesus wonderful? I mean, to be a part of a body that really gets the Great Commission is such a blessing and encouraging to me personally. And to look around and realize that I'm looking at people that recognize that the Word of God is not just a suggestion. 
right? But it's a command and that we're told to go. And, and so it doesn't, it starts at home, doesn't it? It starts right at home in our workplace, in the place wherever we are. No matter where you are, the gospel is always relevant. The good news about Jesus is always relevant. And so don't lose sight of your why, right? So keep a hold of your why. And what is your why? Because Jesus, because he set me free, because he gave everything for me. I owe him everything, right? So if you look up at the walls, you see all these flags. And if you're new here with us, you go, what do all these flags represent? Well, they represent places that we as a church have gone. We as a church have are sowing finances into, or maybe we've visited personally, um, but places where the gospel is being planted and watered and harvests are growing. And we have, um, in fact, this would be interesting. How many people, um, if you're familiar with the flags on the wall, maybe you don't know which ones are there, but if you know there's a flag on the wall where you've been there for the purpose of the gospel, let's stand up. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of you, and um, there's a lot of room to expand on it, isn't it? Right? That's just a fraction of the nations of the uttermost part of the earth. And all the blessings of God that come to us, we are to steward them and be a river that flows out to bless others. And one of the ways that we do that is with our finances. We're, in a moment, we're going to take, um, why am I talking about money? We've already taken the offering. Well, we're going to take another offering. But as we do in this house, every month, the last weekend of the month is what we call our missions weekend. And we have set that time aside to... Uh, we take a special collection uh, for missions all around the world. Any place that you want to partner with, all you have to do is just designate your check or the envelope if you're given by credit card, who you want it to go to, make everything out to Church of the Word International, but 100% of it goes to wherever you designate it. If you do not designate it, it will just go into our general mission fund and then be dispersed from there. And yes, if you're giving to multiple organizations, please write out separate checks, separate envelopes. Make the account counting much, much easier. You know, if one person does it, it's not that big of a deal. But by the time 20 of you do it, suddenly things get really complicated quickly. So if you guys could make separate checks for each individual place you're wanting to give to, we would appreciate it. You know... The prayers that you prayed five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the seeds that you sown into those places, sometimes we forget that, that that's even there. But God remembers. And let's keep our faith turned on that the words that were sown, the finances that are sent, that it's going to accomplish the purposes of God in that place. And that because you've sowed there, the Lord will increase you to do more. Because that's always the purpose, right? To be that river. And to not be, not be, <laughs> not be a damn Christian. You know what I mean when I say a damn Christian? Like a Christian that's a dam and he's holding it all behind him. Rather than a river that's flowing and living and giving. We live to give. <laughs> Jake, he shared that with me this past week. And I'm like, I'm going to use that. I like that. <laughs> so if you are partnered with a mission overseas and 
We're going to collect that offering here in just a moment. So if you need an envelope, just lift up your hands. Our ushers will bring one to you. And then you can, uh, they'll pass the baskets here in just a moment. And we don't ever want someone to get the impression that our comfort is of greater importance than the why we're here. Again, coming back to what I was talking about, what is our why? Is our why to be comfortable? And I'm not saying this to um, put, put pressure on you to give. I'm just saying that if, if this all was over in three weeks' time, if everything was done, everything was wrapped up, or you died and went to go be with Jesus, would you have invested into the kingdom as much as you wanted to? Would you reach your reward in heaven with the type of reward that you'd hoped would be there because we know that we go to heaven based on what Jesus did for us. That's not works-based. But the Word is full of reward being works-based. Not the reward of heaven, but what you have in heaven. How that looks for you. And so we are going to keep our focus on 148 million years from now a real long-term approach rather than just what's happening next week. And some of the things we get so hung up and and caught up with, you know, if you just even take a 10-year approach to it and you go, will this matter in 10 years? You'd be like, no, I I won't even remember it. Right? So, uh, So let's do that. Take a hold of your offering. Let's pray over it. Father, we commit these finances into your kingdom, into your work all around the world starting here at home and everywhere else. Father, I ask you to increase it in the places that it is going. Increase it in the place that it came from. And I ask you, Lord, for your grace to superabound, as you promised in your word, on in these finances, through these finances, and that your work will grow and explode and just continue to bring in this harvest that you have looked for and shed blood for. We thank you for helping us in this. In Jesus' name. Amen. What the ushers can pass the baskets. You know, every week we have a teaching on finances, on giving. Every week Jen gets up and, and she gives a short teaching before the offering about giving us something that we can attach our faith to for our finances. And if you have any smarts about you at all, you realize that You know, it takes money to do things. It takes money to send the gospel. It takes money to be able to own a car. And so we are looking continually to the Lord to be our source and our provider in that. And we don't ever talk about giving. Now, this is important. Listen to me. We don't talk about giving to get you to give to this church. That's not why we talk about it. We talk about it so that you can be increased. Whether you give here or somewhere else, you give wherever the Lord's telling you to give. All right? You follow what He's telling you to do. And the reason we, I, I'm so bold to say that is because we don't need your money. What we need is God to supply our need. And He does that through people. And He puts it on. Let Him be in charge of it. Right? And so we're never looking to put pressure on you to give here. What we are looking to do is to bring instruction in teaching to you that you can attach your faith to and that you can be increased. And Jen does a very good job at that every week. I'm always blessed by it. All right, one more thing before we jump off.
into the great unknown. You all know that Tuesday is election day, right? It's coming up next week. Next Tuesday is election day. And you and I have a responsibility as light and salt in the earth to steward what we've been given. And what we've been given is this nation, this country, these cities, these municipalities, these counties, wherever it is that you're calling home. And we don't take care of them by ignoring elections. I mean, I'm telling you, if, you've, if you're not voting and you're of voting age, you need to vote. You have a responsibility. We have been blessed, I mean, beyond blessed to be in a nation where we can vote. Unfortunately, it seems sometimes the vote hasn't counted, okay? We can just look at the last election and we can see that there's been so much corruption in it. But that should not stop us from still doing our part. You know, if, if I give my, if, if the Lord directs me to give some money to, to Levi, and Levi goes out and blows it on drugs and alcohol and things that he shouldn't be, be spending money on, you know, that's on him, that's not on me. Because the Lord directed me to do it, so I gave it to him. I'll be judged for obeying the Lord. He'll be judged for what he did with what the Lord gave him. Well, what the Lord has given you is the opportunity to vote. And the least that we can do is we go out, we cast our vote, we cast it righteously, all right? And then we let the Lord do what he's going, what he can do. You know, some, a lot of people take this fatalistic approach to elections. Well, God's going to put in whoever he wants. No, that's not true. That's not true because I have a Bible verse for you that says they install kings that I have not approved. They put in princes that I have not chosen. And if people could do that in the Old Testament, they can still do it today. Putting people into power that are not God ordained or chosen. So let's do our part. And part of us doing our part is us informing you. And so in the back as you go out, our ushers are going to hand some papers to you. This one here with the yellow highlighted ones on, this is for Lancaster County. So if you're here outside of Lancaster County, I apologize. I don't have something for you. Most of our people are from, from Lancaster County. And so on this, this paper with the yellow highlighted one is about school boards. These people have been vetted. These people are the people that you want to put on the paper. They're going to be the people that care. They're going to make sure that, that the curriculums that are coming into the school are not the CRT curriculum, not that devilish doctrine of critical race theory. They're, they're looking to keep the, all that pornography and everything that has been going on and coming into the schools over the last several years to put a stop to that. They're looking at giving back to the parents what the parents rightfully have, and that is to choose for their children and for their health and what they want to do with them. So we're talking masks, we're talking forced injections, we're talking all of this. So this list, these people have committed to do these things. And so this is a good list if you're looking to um, know who, sh who you should vote for. Now on this paper, there's, there's a front and back to the one, and then there's a second paper. And this paper covers all of Lancaster County, not just school boards. School boards are on here, but it covers the, the state candidates. It covers the judges. It covers, you know, all the different boroughs, everything. So this list has been put out by the Lancaster uh, Patriot. It's a newspaper. If you haven't heard of it, I, I rec highly recommend it that you sign up and check them out. It's a great newspaper and um, local. They're just new as of this year, I believe. Right. And so they put a voter guide in there of people that they vetted. And now here's something that you have to be aware of when you go to the poll. In Pennsylvania, 
you can cross-file. And what that means is Democrats can come in and, and, and put themselves onto the Republican ballot as a judge, as a school board member, and as a, as a few other things. And so you have to do your homework to know, is the person I'm voting for really who they claim to be? Or are they trying, like a, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, trying to get in? And so on this paper, pay attention to it, because they do have a few people listed that are under the Republican ballot, but they're with a D next to their name. There's a D there. So, so make sure you, you're paying attention. There's also, on the flip side of it, there's some Republicans that have filed as Democrats to try to take it over, right? And so this is a fight of light versus darkness. And we are going to do all that we can to win. And we're going to pray and ask the Lord for victory and make sure that we at least do our part. Okay? So pick up. These papers will be at the door. I will say, um, if you're as a couple, just take one as a couple. I mean, one of each. Um, because, yeah, my printer ran out of paper. And I didn't bring as many copies as I'd hoped to. So um, one per couple would be good. In fact, let's, uh, let's pray right now over the upcoming election. Father, I just cry out to you and I ask you, Lord, for help. I ask you, Father, for deliverance for our nation, for our state, for our counties, for our cities. Lord, I'm asking you to bring righteousness back into these places of civil service. I'm asking you, Father, to direct your people, put it in their heart to get out and to vote and to vote righteously, to vote for you in your principles. And I thank you for the victory that you've given in Jesus name. Amen. Also, an update on uh, Jane English and with the Five Stones team in Iraq right now, they are um, just having a great time. I was talking with him a little bit today and he it seems they um, have just had a lot of success in some of the things they've been doing. But then uh, yesterday or today, the governor of Erbil reached out to them and, and wanted to know if they could help him. There was a flood there in Erbil, and it seems that uh, they need help rescuing people. And so I believe they're going to be involved in that. So um, do, be, do keep them in your prayers for safety and success with that. And also... Um, you know, keep praying for Jim, Jim Wolf, and he needs healing in his body and restoration, right? Just strength to return and, and restoring what the enemy has stolen from him, what sickness has stolen, sickness is an enemy, has stolen from him. And so um, I talked to him. He's been in the hospital, so naturally they won't allow any, just one visitor, which is his wife, of course. So no one's been able to go in and see him, not even his children. And he's been in there for quite a while, so I talked to him on the phone and um, prayed with him and encouraged him. And he's like, yeah, he's believing God to come out of there. And so we uh, let's just unite our faith with him because faith moves mountains, right? And um, or if, if you have someone else that's sick, you know, be quick to, to pray for them and invite others to join you in prayer. The law of the spirit of life, it sets you free from the law of sin and death.